Hey, it's Justin Harvey. Thanks for tuning in to the Anesthesia Success Podcast, where we take a close look at important topics pertaining to business, practice management, personal finance, and careers for anesthesiologists and pain management physicians. On this show, I work hard to take your critical questions straight to the experts. Thanks for listening. This week, I'm talking to Dr. Karen Seibert from UCLA. I'm really grateful for Karen's work because a lot of her writing addresses some of what I would call the annoyingly reductionistic anti-physician journalism that we're seeing out there right now. And I mean, we can all admit that healthcare is very complicated and very broken with what's happening right now with out-of-network billing and other things like that. And Karen is really a voice of sanity and I think advocacy for the specialty and for the patient as it relates to trying to make healthcare a better place. So we're going to unpack a lot of great ideas today. As always, thanks for tuning in. Hello and welcome to episode 47 of the Anesthesia Success Podcast. I'm very pleased to be joined today by Dr. Karen Seibert. Karen is an anesthesiologist in the UCLA Department of Anesthesiology and Perioperative Medicine. She is the past president of the California Society of Anesthesiologists, and she's an accomplished writer who, in my opinion, has a critical voice, not only among anesthesiologists, but among physicians more broadly as part of the healthcare ecosystem. I'm really pleased that she's able to join us today. Welcome, Karen. Thank you for having me here. Uh, so to start us off, tell us a little bit about uh, your current career and scope of duties and responsibilities as a physician. I'm in clinical practice at UCLA. I do a lot of, I concentrate on larger inpatient cases, thoracic, vascular, bariatric, what have you. That's really, thoracic is really my first love. So I'm primarily clinical. But within my department, I'm actually the director of communications. So I'm in charge of the website, the intranet, tweeting on behalf of the department, social media stuff. And um, I was actually the chair of the communications committee within the uh, California Society of Anesthesiologists and have just been writing for a long time. Awesome. Uh, I actually didn't even know that communications part. That actually makes perfect sense now. Uh, <laughs> and you also have a blog at appendpoint, P-E-N-N-E-D-P-O-I-N-T dot com. Uh, and that was how I first became uh, exposed to some of your work. Uh, uh-huh. Talk a little bit about uh, your background as a, as a writer and sort of how you came to you know be what you are now, the director of communications. Right. Well, years and years ago, when I was a little girl in North Texas, I was interested in medicine, but... Um, for little girls in North Texas, that was not a realistic career. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, um, and I went to fairly, my father got moved around a lot in, um, corp, in the corporate world. So I went to a series of pretty mediocre public, high, public schools and high schools. But I managed to read in Time or Newsweek, I can't remember, that um, the Ivy League colleges were going co-ed. And I was ambitious. So I took it into my head to apply to Princeton. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> and by some miracle, I got in. Wow. But this was uh, very early in co-education. And it was also a period of time when it was probably the most competitive to get into medical school that it ever was. It's uh, frankly a lot less competitive now because there are just a lot more medical schools and more positions open. Mm-hmm. And Princeton's organic chemistry course was legendary for, <laughs> you know, it's cruelty, if you like. <laughs> so... Um, I did not have the nerve to take it. I just didn't have the science background. I was surrounded by people who had had AP or AP chemistry, AP biochemistry. And I just went, well, well, you know, that that's okay. I'm just going to do something else. So I majored in English 
And the English department was quite rigorous. They trained you well. And interestingly, the college newspaper had a pretty direct track to the Wall Street Journal. Ah. So first I did a summer internship with the Wall Street Journal. And then um, when I first got out of college, I was a reporter for the Wall Street Journal in the Atlanta Bureau. So I got some really incomparable writing training by people who did not suffer fools gladly. So that, yeah. that turned me into, um, you know, a, as you kindly put it, an accomplished writer. But after I got out of Princeton, I realized that there were a lot of people no smarter than I am who had gotten into medical school. <laughs> so I decided that maybe this was worth a shot. So I took some pre-med classes and I got into medical school at the age of 26 with a four-year-old daughter. Wow. Talk about that transition. <laughs> Were you, so uh, how did, you know, that's a, a pretty big shift, obviously uh -huh. going from the newsroom to all of a sudden you've got a stack of textbooks that you're up reading until midnight. How did that go for you? Fine. Okay. <laughs> Just, um, I think once you've had a child, you realize that sleep is just for the week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I used to actually, when I was at medical school, I'd put her to bed and go to sleep for a couple hours. And I'd wake up and study from about midnight to three and then go back to sleep for a while and, and go to class. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> and funny. it worked for me. Yeah, <laughs> so. but it's funny you say that. We actually had our first child just uh, a couple weeks ago. Then and you know I'm, exactly what I'm talking I'm about. I'm learning this lesson right now, yes. Shooting off <laughs> so playing actually, emails thought, at three in the morning. I thought internship wasn't bad compared to having a newborn. Yeah, wow. Okay, cool. So one of the, the reasons that I'm excited to speak with you this morning, uh, th there's a few, but one of them is this refrain in the public discourse about, I mean, so healthcare broadly, but the physician's sort of place in healthcare and how that attaches to questions around the finances of healthcare. Now, one of the challenges that we're seeing right now, unfortunately, is what I would call somewhat reductionistic journalism, uh, to put it nicely. Well, yes. <laughs> and I'm curious, you know, as you're a, a former reporter, so you probably actually have among the best perspectives on this. Talk about what we're seeing out there right now. And how do you view that through the lens of somebody who used to be a writer for the Wall Street Journal and looking at what's happening in the Washington Post. And there was another article I saw this morning in the New York Times. It's just a, I feel like we're on a hamster wheel of it right now. It's, it's, it's a problem and it's going to continue to be a problem. Now the Wall Street Journal, to its credit, focuses on accuracy and you're far less likely to see anything sensationalistic in there. You could work for three weeks on a story and if you came back and told the editor, I'm sorry, it's just not true. They would go, fine, thank you, and you know, send you off to do something else. They really, and that is simply not true of other news media. Now, the Washington Post and the New York Times, they don't do, they don't tell lies. <laughs> They're not the National Enquirer, but their focus is still very progressive. Now, a lot of people in your audience may consider themselves progressive, and that's fine. That's not what that's not what we're here to talk about. But they are always interested in championing the little guy against the big guy, again, which is fine, except that a lot of times that's really not telling the whole story. But it's always easier for a reporter to find an individual to target rather than a larger entity, because stories are about people, and they want to tell stories about people. 
So the Washington Post finding a surgeon who wants to send this patient an astronomical out-of-network bill is such an easy villain, such an easy target. And I'm not saying that the surgeon in that particular Washington Post article was justified in asking this patient to pay $15,000 for her appendectomy. That's ridiculous. But that's really the tip of the iceberg in medical costs. Physician pay is approximately 8% of all healthcare costs. So we are really not the problem. What we are is the easy target. And in the simplistic viewpoint of a lot of the progressive media, all doctors are old white guys. Now, you and I know that that's not true. (laughs) Your audience knows very well that that's not true. But that is still the stereotype. Old white guys who play golf every Wednesday afternoon, which is ridiculous. I mean, who does that? Do you know anybody that takes off Wednesday afternoon to play golf? Not Not on my planet. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, surgery continues on Wednesday afternoon. (laughs) It just does. So, you know, this is ridiculous, but that's the stereotype they're playing off. And again, it's just an easy target. Yeah. And it continues to be. Yeah. So there was this, you are, you alluded to the article and we'll link to it in the show notes. So anesthesiasuccess.com slash 47. We're going to talk about a, a handful of articles today. You can find all of them linked there. This particular one, the title was something to the, to the effect of we're allowing our physicians to behave like muggers. Yes. Uh, and that and, just, that put me right over the edge. Yeah. That well, you and me both. You and me both. <laughs> and it's funny because we come at this from opposite angles, I guess. So I'm a physician spouse and you're a physician. Okay. So you feel very strongly on behalf of your yourself and your colleagues. And for me, it's like, you're attacking my family. And right. it's whenever we see these just uh, broad brush, very simplistic, not accounting for all the nuance and complexity of the healthcare system and say like, Dr. Bad, <laughs> Dr. Rich, let's, you yeah, know, that exactly. sort of tone. It's it, it just feels to me kind of irresponsible. So I guess the question is to, to follow that up, how, how can we engage in the public discourse with the media, with all of these types of inflammatory headlines flying around from these institutions that need to sell ad space. How do we how do we compete with that? How are you working against that in the work that you're doing? Or maybe do we need to take a total end around sort of like a la <laughs> Donald Trump where it's just we go straight to the people with our Twitter account. We don't need the news media anymore and we can just, you know, that that type of approach. <laughs> well, that's that's frankly it because you know they're not interested in the facts. They're really not. Um, they're really not interested in serious rebuttals. So that's why I actually do take my opinions and comments straight to social media. And it's very gratifying to see uh, an opinion column like mine take off because my blog, yeah. I've never monetized it. It's really been a labor of love, or as my husband would say, Karen thinks everyone is entitled to her opinion. So, <laughs> um, but my husband and my son are both physicians, just to just right. to put that out. So you, they're attacking my family too. Right. I think I think really we do we do more that way. The my little blog has already had more than four hundred thousand views of that of that column. Um, a podcast interview I did with Mike Varshavsky has gotten over five hundred thousand views. Wow. I don't I don't think those people are reading the Washington Post. Yeah, the vast majority of them. I really don't. Yeah. So I think that that we we can do more that way if we can tell our story in a way that that resonates with people. That's mm-hmm. the That's the mega view, the grand view. But I think that one-on-one still is the most important way that we establish relationships with patients. And that's a problem we have in anesthesiology with the current production pressure of, you know, 10-minute turnovers. If, If I haven't met that patient before, how am I supposed to establish 
any kind of physician-patient relationship with that patient in three minutes. Now, right. you can you can go a long way to do that. You really can. Um, one thing that I really do try to do is have a business card. Give it to my patients. Mm-hmm. Say, you know, I'm, I'm Dr. Seibert. I'm with anesthesiology. Here's my card. Here's my office phone. Here's my email. Here's a little information about me. And I put, you know, where I went to medical school, where I did residency training, because as you, I'm sure you well know, in anesthesiology, not all the public even knows we're doctors. Right. And the nurse anesthetists are doing everything they can to blur those lines. Yeah. So everything <laughs> that we do one-on-one to say, me doctor, <laughs> right. and I'm here to take care of you, and I'm responsible, and I'm accountable, and if you have any problems afterward, call me. Mm-hmm. Don't just give you know, a bad online review or don't complain right. on your press gainy scores. I'm yeah. here to take care of you and I am responsible for you. That goes a huge amount of the way. A lot of anesthesiologists, I feel, make the mistake of wanting to stay anonymous, wanting to stay under the radar. So if the patient has any problem, they don't really even know who to go to. Mm-hmm. That's a mistake. That's a real tactical error that we've made. Yeah, and I think obviously the specialty kind of selects for people like that, right? Because it's it can, uh, mm-hmm. and and so the uh, talk a little bit about maybe the the unique challenges of the anesthesiologist in the context of the things that we're just discussing, as because it's it is a little bit more of a you know you're not in the limelight as an anesthesiologist. There, there's more of a need for anesthesiologists perhaps to be assertive in these discussions, to be able to share their opinion and their perspective, especially in the context of the way that money is moving and through health, in and through healthcare and with the way billing works with anesthesiology and things like that. It's right. easy for if the anesthesiologists don't, uh, you know, speak <laughs> and advocate, then there's a danger that they're going to get run over potentially by the New York Absolutely. Times. I mean, I'm sure you've heard the expression, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. Yeah. And that's our problems often within hospitals because we can't get out of the OR just to go to committee meetings. Mm. We're always, you know, in the morning or at lunchtime or whatever. So every group needs to make time to have somebody who's representing their interests within their hospital or health system. It's just critical, I, you know, that there's no, there's no way around it. The second point is there really is a lot that you can do with your uh, local medical society and your anesthesiology society. That's why I think involvement with the CSA has been so important for me. It's taught me so much about advocacy, about the issues that affect us all. But we just can't be silent. If we're Mm -hmm. silent, then we're screwed. And what I think your audience really, really needs to understand is that we are paid on average 27% of our usual and customary fees by Medicare and probably even less than that by Medicaid. So when you hear the phrase Medicare for all, you should be having nightmares (laughs) because it really will be the end of our specialty as we know it. This is not a joke. This is a real threat. The second point to that, and it goes back to my column, is that out-of-network billing or surprise billing is a huge issue. The solution that happened in the legislature in California, which, believe me, the CSA and the California Medical Association fought hard against, and the current bill that got enacted 
is a compromise which we are deeply unhappy with and which is having terrible consequences. But the California solution provides that any out-of-network charge or surprise billing charge, whatever, they're, they're synonymous, is going to be linked to either the average contracted rate or 125% of Medicare. And what that does is it provides the insurers with huge incentives not to negotiate contracts anymore because 125% of Medicare is always going to be better for them than the historical average contracted rates. And that's what anesthesia groups in California are seeing is that the companies are just completely unwilling to negotiate new contracts. Blue Cross has told some groups flat out, we're not negotiating a new contract, get over it. We're better off with you out of network. And that makes us look really like bad guys. Yeah. When the anesthesia group can't get a fair contract and then they end up sending out of network bills and then patients justifiably are very, very upset. Yeah. And this is, this is the danger with what's going on in Congress right now, because two of the current bills that are before Congress, uh, the Alexander Murray bill, and uh, there's, there's another one, there are, there are different versions circling around between the uh, Ways and Means Committee and other committees. They are, again, linked to benchmark rates. This is a disaster for us. Other specialties, their Medicare rates are much closer to their usual and customary. Anesthesia is actually the worst. Yeah. So the ASA is fighting this tooth and nail. And there is one bill. It's sponsored by Ruiz and Roe. It's H.R. 3502. And that is actually a bill that's modeled after New York's bill, mm. which is based on the fair health average. And that is the bill that the ASA supports. And everybody out there should be calling your congressman and telling them to support H.R. 3502 because that is the only one that really is going to help our specialty survive. Great. So we're going to link to that in the show notes, HR 3502. Uh -huh. uh, so anybody out there who's interested in trying to advocate for fair uh, compensation for, or fair reimbursement for the anesthesia specialty, definitely go check that out. Call your local congressperson. So I'm curious, uh, Karen, you know, you said this, you threw out this number, 27% of the usual and customary rate. Can you break that down and say, like, what exactly does that mean compared to maybe other specialties and just walk us through the math of, of that? <laughs> well, I'm not, not sure how much more detail I can go into, but and in, in a lot of other specialties, what they get paid by Medicare is roughly 80% of what a commercial payer would pay them. Right. So they don't care if, you know, if, if so they take a little bit of a, of a loss on, you know, Medicare. They don't take, they, especially in private practice, you can limit the number of Medicare patients you take, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. uh, the more you're in a health system, they're going to negotiate that for you. You really have no say in that. But, but still, salaries have, by and large, they've gone down historically in, in relative to inflation. I mean, what, what anesthesiologists made in the 80s was much, much more than they make today. I mean, pay has just slid inexorably down. Mm -hmm. But in anesthesiology, you see, we were always a, a procedure-based specialty, and we had a lot of procedures. You build for every case, you build for every unit, you build for every arterial line, you build for every central line, you build for every epidural. So being a procedure-based specialty as opposed to primary care, which was office visits, we did very well. So when that, when these, originally it was about a third of, of customary insurance payments for Medicare. Now it's, it's sort of slid down a little further to 20, about 27% on the average. 
now that's going to turn into some real real money if if every out of network bill goes to anything tied to medicare rates it is just a disaster for us much more so than for any other specialty so the asa is in washington continuously trying to fight against these bills luckily we have some people in congress who are physicians like Dr. Ruiz from California. He is an emergency physician. He's one of the sponsors, the original authors of HR 3502. We have Andy Harris from Maryland, who's the only anesthesiologist in Congress. And I help support his campaign every two years because we really need him in Congress, even though I don't live in Maryland. And Dr. Cassidy, who is from Louisiana, is a, a hepatologist, a liver specialist. And he's, um, you know, actually spoken a great deal in the media about the dangers of, of these misguided bills. He just had a, there was just a commentary in MedPage the other day with Dr. Cassidy going through some, several of the bills and saying what a, what a problem they are. Because they really are a problem for everybody, not just us. It's just that for us, it's just that, that extra helping of worse. Right. So you mentioned for a moment Medicare for All, and I'd love to drill down in this, onto this for a moment and just... Talk about, you know, what is, so right now, if, if we're talking about 27% of usual and customary reimbursement, uh, it sounds like if commercial, the commercial gap, like the, the premium that commercial payers would pay based on a procedure is, it's going to kind of, I guess, go away, or maybe it's going to change drastically if Medicare for all, something like that is enacted. Talk a little bit about kind of the implications of that and, and what that would mean <laughs> for this, this specialty. First of all, I don't really think that commercial insurance is going to go away. Right. It, it, that's it. Thousands and thousands of jobs depend on it. No matter how much you hate in it's hard hate to commercial, <laughs> commercial insurance, I, I really don't think that that's a realistic scenario in, in anybody's wildest dreams. But what can happen is that we could go to some kind of system where the insurers are much more able to negotiate rates tied to some uh, multiple of Medicare or even part multiple of Medicare, which again, if you want to take a three quarter percent pay cut, you know, okay, but I, I would rather not. <laughs> I think that that's, that's not, that's not fair. Um, although life is not fair. So, you know, we probably should just get over fair right now. But I think, I think that a lot of younger anesthesiologists really just don't know that simple mm -hmm. fact and i'm here to help tell you that <laughs> because it's really important it's really important for everybody to understand the more people end up in employment situations as opposed to private practice you think that you're protected from this but you're not yeah there was i saw an article on and becker's the other day maybe you saw it it was uh, a bunch of uh, a big it was team health and their emergency physicians, there was a big contract uh -huh, negotiation uh -huh. with one of the payers. I forget which one it was, right. but they basically were playing chicken and Team uh -huh. Health kind of lost. And so right. they just slashed. It was like a 5% cut across the board uh -huh. of physician salaries. Yeah. And that's that doctors the, who are in a W-2 situation. That is the canary in the coal mine mm -hmm. right there. So you think it can't happen to you because your big health system is going to keep continue to pay your salary? Uh-uh. It's, yeah. it's not going to happen. So it's if just we, reality. Yeah. If we zoom in on maybe one of these situations, it could be the one in the Washington Post or just a similar sort of somebody comes in and it's an in-network hospital and maybe an in-network surgeon. Talk about 
why does what is it that enables surprise billing to like who is happy about surprise bill who's winning when a surprise bill happens in that sort of context whether it's the anesthesiologist or an emergency room physician why are why are i think pretty much everyone agrees that surprise billing is bad but obviously uh-huh. if someone wasn't being enriched or if someone didn't have a a benefit from surprise billing it would no longer exist so wh- why is it happening still it largely benefits the insurance companies that's that's who it benefits those are the only people it benefits and I don't know what, what the difficulty is in seeing that. I think the difficulty from the public perspective and the media perspective is that the bill comes with one doctor's name on it. So automatically, that's the bad guy or gal. Uh, and it's that simple. But here's the origin of the problem. The origin of the problem is that um, a lot of changes happened in the insurance industry with the Affordable Care Act. The Affordable Care Act legislated a lot of things for insurance companies that they had to cover that were not historically covered. People were actually able to buy policies like my children are grown. So I would have been able to buy a policy that didn't cover maternal fetal care or, you know, things like that. That does not exist anymore. So the insurance companies not being idiots then found other ways to make up what they were going to lose and having to do more comprehensive coverage. And the easiest way to do that is to make your network very narrow. So you probably heard a lot about President Obama having said, if you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor. And that ended up being a pipe dream. People couldn't keep their doctors. And the insurance companies are have really not done a great job of telling patients how narrow, how narrow their networks were. The websites for um, Covered California, which is the, the Affordable Care Act arm in, in California, you can't find any decent information on their website to save your life. So people have a hard time finding out if their doctors are in network or out of network. The lists are out of date. They're inaccurate, et cetera, et cetera. So when you have extremely narrow networks and the patient doesn't know that, that's how this happens. Hmm. And so a responsible insurance company, of which there may be some, I don't know, but there might be, they will try to make sure that everybody has the basics, you know, an internist, a pediatrician, a surgeon. In the case of the patient in that Washington Post article, clearly she went to a hospital for emergency services and the surgeon on their emergency coverage panel, the person taking call was out of network for her insurance. Now that's actually kind of outrageous. First of all, that the hospital would allow that because I've never worked anywhere when my services just weren't covered. In other words, if, you know, I used to work at a big private hospital in Los Angeles, Cedars Sinai, but if a patient walked in the door and Cedar Sinai accepted them. I accepted them, and I just we just got paid whatever, whatever was collected. Period. You know, we just I never had to. Any time a patient asked me, "Are you on my insurance?" My answer was automatically yes, or I wouldn't be talking to you. And so, the hospital had some responsibility to make sure that surgeons on their emergency coverage panel were in network with major insurers. That, that's really part of their responsibility. And the insurance company must have had very narrow networks or else, you know, 
refuse to negotiate a fair contract with the surgeon, either of which is is equally likely. Right. So that that's the the brief brief history. And so, if there was to be a, either a legislative or some sort of systemic fix to the current situation, what might that look like? In a perfect world, obviously, there's in a perfect world, there's no more out of network billing. What is it going to need to take to get us to that point? Or is that well, is that the ultimate end? I don't know. Well, the ultimate end would be that insurers do have to negotiate some sort of reasonable contract with with anesthesiologists and other physicians and everybody that delivers services. And it's going to be up to the government to try to sort out the problems which have led us down this road where the insurers just create more and more narrow networks and refuse to negotiate contracts to drive people out of networks so that the problem falls on us. That is really the crux of the situation. So any bill like these other bills other than HR 3502, which wants to set a benchmark rate, is leading us in an inevitable circle toward the bottom, you know, down the drain. And that's really where things need to stop. So everything that we can do, you know, the AMA, the CSA, everybody, to get in touch with your your congressman, you know, I've been in personal touch with my congressman, and he is one of the co-signers of HR 3502, and that's what everybody needs to do. Uh, otherwise, honestly, it's important to understand, this is the point that Dr. Cassidy has made, it's not just us, it's hospitals too, because hospitals have other, always supported their charity care with the overage from what commercial payers paid. And that's why if you follow if you read Becker's and other things, that's why so many rural hospitals are going bankrupt because they're the most fragile. Hmm. But hospitals are going bankrupt all the time. I'm sure you heard about uh, Hahnemann Hospital in Philadelphia. Yeah, that was in our and backyard that was, there. That was personal for me because my son was a Drexel resident right. who was left scrambling for a position to finish his third year. So it's not just tiny rural hospitals, which enables people to think, oh, well, that's not never going to be my problem. That yeah. was a big city um, a big city hospital took care of a lot of indigent patients, a lot of Medicare and Medicaid, and it went broke. Now, there's more to the story about who bought it and what they did with it. And did they want to just let it go down the drain because the land was worth more than the hospital, all of which is possible. Right. But nonetheless, hospitals can't and do go bankrupt for exactly the same problems that we're talking about with physician payment. Right. So there's obviously a, <laughs> this is a, and this is the exact, the conversation we're having right now is exactly why this can't frankly be responsibly covered in like a, you know, 250 words on the, the right hand column of a newspaper. It's just, exactly. there's, there's a lot of stakeholders. There's a lot of implications. There's a lot of unintended uh -huh. consequences of taking any right. action and these overly. And a lot of us don't want to yeah. think about it. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to, it's a tough problem to solve, obviously, but it's a very important one. It really one. is. We're at a really critical juncture in it, too. So there's a lot to obviously be discouraged about. We don't have to look very far. We could throw a rock and hit 10, 10 problems with healthcare. Uh, is there anything right now as you're looking across the landscape? Is there any work that anyone's doing or any progress or any relationships that you're building maybe with somebody across the aisle where you think, <laughs> I think that there are some sane people out here who want to build a system that's going to serve patients well in the long run? I think that's, I think that's true also. And it's still a great job yeah that <laughs> i still really enjoy it yeah that's when you look at um people in silicon valley 
or sports stars or actors, you know. Now, they're over the hill at 30. You can practice medicine for decades. And it's a it's a wonderful career. It's I never have to go to work and think about, am I going to do anything today that's really going to cheat anybody? Or, you know, they're in the corporate world. People are really often between a rock and a hard place about doing things that are ethical or non-ethical. And, and is my career based on encouraging people to buy things that they don't need and can't afford? You don't have to. You don't have to think about that. It's right. really, it's really one of the noblest professions there is. And I think we lose sight of that sometimes. That the gratification and the personal rewards of being a physician are immeasurable. Now, you, you read a lot these days about burnout all over the place. And to the degree that the production pressures are too huge, we have a responsibility to push back against that. Hmm. There are times that you just have to say, no, you know, no, I'm not ready to take this patient back. We have X, Y, or Z to think about. The other aspect to it also is that, and this is, a, this is always something that whenever I say it, people roll their eyes, but I think work-life balance has been more of a problem for burnout than people realize. Mm-hmm. And here's why. As soon as you really start to think that work-life balance is the, is the, you know, the be-all and end-all, well, to me, the opposite of work is leisure. The opposite of life is death. <laughs> if, you, if you have a job, where you're seeing your work and your life in opposition to each other, then you need to find another job. Mm-hmm. Don't be a martyr. You, I mean, you know, we're well-educated, smart, ambitious, hardworking adults. You don't have to put up with a job that you actively hate. Now, if it turns out that the job you actively hate is medicine, period, that's a, that's a different conversation. Yeah. But if the conditions at your workplace are such that you feel just chronically exhausted, unhappy, find another job. You you don't have to live like that. For me, the solution has been, I really like big, long, ugly, complicated, challenging cases. (laughs) I just do. That has the advantage that everybody knows they're sick. Right. And it takes me a while to interview them and find out everything. If it takes me a while to put in all the lines and get the case going, nobody nobody is bugging me. And I deal with it most half a dozen patients a day, which enables me to really know them, to spend time with them, to, you know, organize my life that way. That's my choice. And so that's a choice I made that has been very satisfying for me. If what you want to do is work in ambulatory surgery center, where you have no nights, no call, no weekends, nobody's really sick, then you're going to have that kind of production pressure where you feel like you're on an assembly line because you're going to be doing 10 or 15 cases in a day. But that's a choice that you get to make. And if that's your choice, then I don't think you're justified in complaining that the turnovers are 10 minutes and you're always pushed for time. There are trade-offs. There are trade-offs everywhere. But you have to take some ownership (laughs) of what you're doing and why. Yeah. Makes sense. Would you say that, uh, how does the, you know... consolidation in anesthesiology, how does that impact this? Because you might say, well, if I'm going to practice in a certain geographic locale or even a a small city, if there's only one or two games in town and neither of them Mm -hmm. look like good options, it might be, uh, 
it might be that even though there is the internal locus of control, I, I can control my situation and I can make a decision that's going to positively impact myself and my family. I guess you have to decide whether or not you want to go somewhere else. Is, yeah. I mean, I can't, I, again, you're hundred percent right. If, yeah. if you really are just limited to one geographic area, that's going to limit your options. That That's just, right. you know, that's just the way it is. But if you are working at a place that you feel uh, the term, I think that, people are using that's inflicting significant moral injury on you then if you stay there and put up with the conditions as they are it is going to make you crazy and sad and that's um you know that's the way it is so we have to fight against workplaces that are like that and you know if we if we are only looking at ourselves as individuals which i think physicians tend to do then there's no hope that you as an individual are going to make an impact in that. If your whole department feels the same way and you can get on the committees and you can say, this is unsafe, we cannot work like this, that's different. That's a collective action. I'm not saying a union, but a collective action that's going to eventually get attention, particularly if your whole department is really united and if you can take it to the media. Media can can be your friend. Yeah. It's a little bit of a dance with the devil sometimes, I feel like. It is. uh, It is. But, you know. uh, Yeah, I agree. You know, you got to uncover the, you know, you got to move the rocks and and let things crawl out sometimes if (laughs) if things are bad enough. That's right. Uh, Well, I really appreciate your time today, Karen. I want to end on like uh, a reflective, upbeat note. (laughs) Sure. Something redemptive. So you've obviously, you have a very, I mean, long and diverse career, not only starting in writing, but then moving through uh, clinical practice and leadership and advocacy and lots of different things that you have pushed into and accomplished in your career. As you look back on all the, you know, the many things that you've done, tell me a story about a time when you really invested and gave yourself and really tried to accomplish something. And then you you found actualization and you were able to achieve or to that moment of patient care or that moment of advocacy for your profession. Or tell me just a, a brief story to encapsulate something that uh, <laughs> as you remember it, it's something that you're proud of. It's something that you're grateful for. And that, I mean, it's very clear that you're, you're glad to be an anesthesiologist. Mm-hmm. Uh, why? Well, I'm going to, okay. Then I'll tell you a story of a patient I took care of a few months ago. So this isn't a grand, you know, national accomplishment, but this is what makes the job ultimately, I think, either soul-destroying or soul-gratifying. This was a patient that got added to my schedule in the afternoon. He came in from the clinic. He had a carotid stent that was occluded. So I wasn't even on call, but I ended up, you know, the timing was such that I put the patient to sleep, and he was an incredibly challenging patient to take care of because he had taken all his antihypertensives it was critical to keep his blood pressure up. Um, so many things were important in the case. And it was just a, it was a moment to moment challenge to, to try to keep the, you know, they were doing EEG monitoring and, you know, the slightest thing happened the waves would start to dampen and I'd be pushing the pressure up again. And so first they sent, um, and I was covering it solo for the first two hours because every Tuesday afternoon our patients go to lecture. So at five o'clock, they sent a nurse anesthetist in to relieve me. And I said, no. <laughs> and then a while later, they, they said, well, so-and-so can take over the case for you with a senior resident. And 
again, I just felt like I just can't, I can't, you know, because I had met this patient pre-op. I knew what his mental status was. And he was a charming, very with it, you know, really funny, nice guy in his late 70s. And I, and I thought if he wakes up confused or different, people are just going to say, well, he's, you know, 77 or whatever it was. They're not going to know that he's different. And so I finished that case through all the way till nine o'clock. And then the other thing that's a challenge with somebody who's having carotid surgery is you've got to extubate them smoothly because if they cough and they get a hematoma in their neck, it's a disaster, you know, swelling, et cetera. So I did a very smooth extubation, but still he was awake within five minutes and, and talking about different brands of pizza and um, what was his favorite and why. And everybody in the OR was just about ready to jump up and cheer because oh. it had been technically challenging for the surgeons. It's certainly been challenging for me. We were all there to the end and the patient did really well and went home in two days. Hmm. Now, when my children were small, I wouldn't have had the luxury to do that. And I totally get that, but I can do it now. And that's my choice. And cases like that are still just so gratifying and they make you glad that you went into anesthesia and then when you take over a case from somebody let's be blunt that patient is a slab of meat on the table they're already asleep you don't know them you're not going to be available to evaluate them after you're not really ever that's not a meaningful relationship so part of it is us it really is and i find it worth doing hmm well, thank you for sharing that story. And Dr. Karen Seibert, <laughs> thank you very much for joining us today on the Anesthesia Success Podcast. You're very welcome. It was my pleasure. If you liked what you heard this week, head on over to anesthesiasuccess.com, where you can find more content and free resources to help you build a successful career in anesthesiology and pain management. If you wanted to leave a review in iTunes, I would also really appreciate it. Thanks for using some of your valuable time to join me today on the Anesthesia Success Podcast.